Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Endocrinology. In this podcast, Professor Marsha Brose, a medical oncologist, explores the importance of molecular pathology and individual patient profiles in guiding personalised medicine in thyroid cancer to deliver optimal outcomes. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc. and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first section, Professor Marsha Brose discusses the principles of personalised medicine in thyroid cancer and what key genomic alterations can be targeted. Hello, I'm Marsha Brose from the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center in here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and today we will be talking about practical considerations for personalized medicine in thyroid cancer, which therapies are suited to particular patient profiles. What do we currently know about the molecular pathology of thyroid cancer? We divide thyroid cancer up into three subtypes. The first is medullary thyroid cancer. It occurs in about 5 to 10% of cases, and it is derived from the parafollicular or C cells in the thyroid. The other two are derived from the follicular cells in the thyroid, and it is either differentiated thyroid cancer, which is the vast majority, or undifferentiated thyroid cancer or anaplastic thyroid cancer, which is extremely rare, less than 2% of cases. Differentiated thyroid cancer is obviously less aggressive to anaplastic or undifferentiated thyroid cancer, which can be very, very aggressive and uniformly fatal. So molecular pathology of these is, is pretty well characterized. Um, BRAF mutations occur in about 50% of differentiated thyroid cancers, and to a lesser extent, we see other types like RAS or RET um, and track track fusions. RET alterations are usually fusions in this case. RAS can also be seen in differentiated thyroid cancer. Anaplastic, the the molecular um, are similar, but maybe slightly less in uh, actual BRAF mutations, maybe a few more RAS mutations, and many, many more uh, P53 and many more P10 or AKT type mutations. In medullary thyroid cancer, we have up to 50% can be associated with RET point mutations, and half of those can be hereditary. How are we using our knowledge of the molecular pathology of thyroid cancer to improve treatment and management options? Knowing the genetics of and the, and the genomic alterations in thyroid cancer allows us to do several things. First, in the at the time of, of biopsy, adding molecular testing to the fine needle aspirates that are part of the biopsy at the early um, characterization of a thyroid nodule can sometimes help a pathologist determine whether or not a certain nodule has a tend- has a likelihood of being um, of being malignant. So it can help us when there are borderline calls and we're not quite sure what the risk is. If it has a molecular alteration, that would off- often help the pathologist say this is likely to be malignant and we need to actually um, maybe proceed with a surgical intervention. It can also help us with understanding when you do have a cancer, what is the prognostic um, what is the prognostic situation for that patient? For instance, you know, some some mutations such as P53 are associated with much more aggressive tumors. TERT alterations also are a little bit more likely to be aggressive, and RAS mutations are more likely to be aggressive. B 
BRAF mutations are more likely to be associated with cancers that ultimately will not take up radioactive iodine, but actually they do quite well in patients who already have widespread dissemination of their disease and are already RAI refractory. So interestingly, the prognostic value might actually be dependent on what stage of the disease you're characterizing. And last but not least, it is also helpful in helping us target with systemic therapies some of the cancers. Many of the alterations now that we've identified can be actually targeted with a specific molecularly targeted therapy. And what that can do sometimes is it can improve our ability to actually kill the cancer while decreasing toxicity. Some examples of this are the recent um, discovery of NTRAC fusions, for instance or RET uh, point mutations or RET fusions, because these both have very, very good, highly selective targeted agents, which is, have improved our ability to control those, uh, those diseases in advanced thyroid cancer. To a lesser extent, we do also know that there are other agents such as pembrolizumab that have been uh, um, approved for patients who have molecular tumor burdens that are high. However, in thyroid cancer, this is very rare. So usually um, pembrolizumab is not necessarily indicated for thyroid cancer. But again, understanding the molecular uh, characterization of our tumors allows us to now pull in therapies that may either have been studied directly in thyroid cancer, as is the case for NTRAC or RET or even BRAF mutations. But there might also be other ones, such as if you happen to have a very rare, uh, rare ALK fusion in a thyroid cancer, there are ALK-targeted uh, agents that you could pull in that have been approved in other settings. What therapies targeting the molecular pathology of thyroid cancer are currently available? So we have many therapies right now that target the molecular biology of thyroid cancer, and some of them we would classify as multi-kinase agents because a single agent such as lenvatinib will target FGFR, PD, PDGFR, VEGFR, RET, and, and sometimes um, other, uh, other targets that are not even on the slide. So in other words, lenvatinib, is a multi-kinase inhibitor. It, it inhibits many of these molecular um, molecules and they're all kinases. So that's where it gets the name multi-kinase inhibitor. The same is true for serafinib, pizopinib, vendetinib, cabozantinib. On the right, you see ones that are a bit more selective. So pralcetinib and salpercatinib selectively target RET, which is um, important in patients who have either RET fusion or RET point mutations in their cancer. RET fusions are associated with differentiated thyroid cancer. RET point mutations are found in medullary thyroid cancer. Entractinib and lerotractinib selectively target entract fusions, which are present mostly in differentiated thyroid cancer. Although interestingly, I actually had one in a medullary thyroid cancer. So what this basically says is it's important to test our patients because some of these selective inhibitors can only be used in patients that have those mutations. When we actually look at um, the therapeutic targets and then the agents that have actually been approved, we have dibrafenib and trametinib that have been approved primarily based on what's called a tumor agnostic um, approach. It's been approved in all tumors that have BRAF mutations, but there is uh, data more more limited data, but the data nonetheless, specifically in anaplastic cohorts and also in differentiated thyroid cancer cohorts. So dibrafenib and trametinib is something that we can use. 
prilsatinib and salpercatinib have been studied in both um, papillary thyroid cancer and in uh, medullary thyroid cancer. We're not using prilsatinib as much, and those are for RET fusions, and they are now um, being used um, in both the uh, in both the U.S. and to some degree also in the in Europe and other places. Um, I'll point out that prolsetinib is no longer uh, approved for medullary thyroid cancer in the U.S., and it's been pulled, I believe, from the European market. So entrectinib and lerotrectinib selectively, uh, as I said, uh, attack entrac fusions, um, and these are approved, again, for patients that have those mutations. Now, the multi-kinase inhibitors, which are the last few on the screen, are approved in, um, it, are, don't necessarily need molecular testing, they do hit molecular targets. And so linvatinib, serafinib, um, and cabozantinib are approved in differentiated thyroid cancer, and um, and then vendetinib and cabozantinib are approved in medullary thyroid cancer. Because these actually improve the progression-free survival in all patients, you do not need molecular testing. And so if you have a patient that did not have molecular characterization of their tumor, these agents can still be used regardless. How do we test for genetic biomarkers in thyroid cancer? The most important thing to know about testing for genetic biomarkers in thyroid cancer is the fact that um, we many of the alterations we've talked about, including RET fusions, TRAC fusions, are really primarily um, able to be detected in RNA. So for most of them, what we really would prefer to do is get samples from the tissue, either by a fine needle aspirate or by testing the surgical samples. And we'd like to do an RNA-based next-generation sequencing. This is the gold standard. It will pick up all of the mutations that are relevant. They are the It's the easiest and it's a single test. We usually can test um, mostly, as I said, the tissue itself. That will tell us all the information we need to know for that patient and that patient's cancer. What it will not tell us in the case of RET particularly is if that patient um, in medullary thyroid cancer, if we do detect on NGS, for instance, a point mutation, what it won't tell us is, is that uh, a RET mutation hereditary. So in medullary cancer um, specifically, if a patient is identified in having a RET mutation, you then want to go back and check the blood and see whether or not this patient has it in their bloodstream, because if they do, they have the hereditary MEN2 syndrome and they need to have specific genetic counseling because it could affect their um, direct blood relatives. But really, at the end of the day, we're moving away from PCR fish um, and Sanger sequencing for single um, for single genetic alterations and really trying to move to next generation sequencing, which will really give us all the information that we need. What are the key considerations when testing for specific genetic alterations to guide treatment decisions in thyroid cancer? Most importantly, I think when we're talking about the availability of targeted agents, for every patient, if they've not had their tissue checked, I usually want to get that information upfront because it does affect which uh, which targeted therapy I'm going to choose. So it's important to get that information upfront. And because, as I said, the gold standard for getting all of the information, particularly for the fusions, you often need to have a relatively fresh sample. So if the sample is over two years old, I usually am going to have to find a site in the patient that I can biopsy. Now, the good news is, is that RNA-based NGS is particularly successful in a fine needle aspirate, provided that you can get a good aspirate in the, in the tumor itself and obviously um, have a big enough, um, you know, 
confidence that you've actually sampled the tissue and not obviously somewhere near it. So, so that's a good way to go if you have a patient who did not have testing, but maybe they had their surgery five years before. That tissue and for somatic testing is not going to be so useful. So then often a fine needle aspirate at the time can help. But tissue biopsy is definitely the um the stand the gold standard and will really tell us at least what's happening in that patient. Um, and that's most important when we're out talking about treatment. So you can see here on the left that we have BRAF mutations, RET mutations or fusions, and NTRAC fusions. And all of these, as you can see, the preferred method is NGS uh, sequencing. You can do Sanger sequencing or RT-PCR. If you have a, a, a thought that, or, you know, you're not sure whether a certain nodule, so say maybe the patient has a history of lung cancer as well, and they also have a history of a RET positive thyroid cancer, and now they have a nodule in their lung and you're not sure is this their lung cancer, is this their RET-associated medullary thyroid cancer, you could do a biopsy and then just do a point mutation analysis for the RET because that would tell you right away whether or not it's the differentiated or not. But for the most part, NGS all the way. It will give you all of the answers in one test. Um, and as I pointed out for RET, the additional consideration is you can get away sometimes with the just DNA testing as opposed to RNA testing in medullary cancers a little bit more because these are more likely to be point mutations. And so those can be detected in DNA. They can also be detected in older specimens. Um, the one other consideration is if you're looking for BRAF mutations in a, in a plastic thyroid cancer, sometimes it can take a couple of weeks to get that answer back, although even those times are getting shorter and shorter. But in the past, sometimes what we do is a quick PCR test for BRAF because BRAF is an active agent and because of the aggressiveness of that tumor, we usually want to know that right away so we can get them started. Thank you for those interesting insights, Professor Bruce. Now let's move on to our next topic. What is the latest clinical evidence for personalized targeted treatments for thyroid cancer? What are the limitations of standard systemic treatment of thyroid cancer? The standard treatments for both medullary thyroid cancer and differentiated thyroid cancer up until just a couple of years ago was to treat these both with multi-kinase inhibitors. And these are effective and they are useful in these patients and they have undoubtedly extended people's lives. But what are some of the unmet needs that we have? Well, first we have the question of timing or the issue of the fact that just overall these, these agents are not gonna be curative. So we're usually using them in patients who already have metastatic disease. It's not going to remove all of their all of their sites of disease. And because of that, they're going to re require being on therapy for a long time to maintain their response. So, and they'll often have some shrinkage, but they'll have to maintain that response by staying on the therapy for a long time. Then there's also the question of selection. Now, noting that as I said, the, the data says that these agents are actually active regardless of genotype. I mentioned, for, for an instance, that RAS-mutated um, patients do particularly worse in both differentiated thyroid cancer and medullary thyroid cancer. So, you know, it, it's important to know that there still is variability within this, but we don't use a molecular test to select whether or not we treat these patients. Um, but that's partly because they are multi-kinase inhibitors. They hit multiple targets. Now, the primary target for the multi-kinase inhibitors are the VEGF 
um, receptor. And those are um, on the blood uh, vessels that actually feed the cancer. So that's great. It can make the cancer shrink somewhat and it can stabilize it and prevent it from growing. But what that also means is that going on to the third item on this list is it, it creates toxicity because blood vessels are obviously in other tissues. And because of that, you can end up with a situation where while you're controlling the cancer, you're also causing things like diarrhea or loss of muscle mass and weight loss. So it's it's really important that we understand that's one of the limitations of the multi-kinase inhibitors. And so it was always considered an, an interest of ours to see if we could so more selectively target alterations in the cancer cells and less target um, the normal tissues. And that would hopefully improve what we call the, the therapeutic um, window, which is you know where you have benefit without as much toxicity. Um, and last numet need is that no matter what we do with these agents, and we can use them sequentially. So in, in differentiated thyroid cancer, we have serafinib and limvatinib approved in the first line, and then cabozantinib approved to follow. We can use these sequentially, but ultimately, at some point, all of these agents will lose their ability to control the cancer and resistance develops. And so we're always in a, in a race with these agents about what do we do um, with resistance. Now, that's true even of the selective therapies, but resistance is always is a problem. It's the thing that limits usually the usefulness of some of these agents. So the hope of the newer selective kinase inhibitors is that they are going to be more selective, less toxic, um, and in some cases even produce sig more significant benefits with the hope of a possible cure, although I don't think we've gotten that yet, but at least a much better, what I would say, therapeutic, um, a therapeutic window. What are we learning from the latest clinical data about new and emerging treatment options for thyroid cancer with NTRAC gene fusions? Of the selective kinase inhibitors, NTRAC fusions were actually one of the first ones to be studied outside of just BRAF and thyroid cancer. And it's probably associated with anywhere from two to up to 20% of patients with RAI refractory differentiated thyroid cancer. And that's really important because I think before we didn't really know much about track fusion, so we weren't even looking for it. But again, the benefit of NGS testing now is that we're finding it where we didn't expect. And as I said, I was shocked when I had a patient with medullary thyroid cancer, and it turned out that a track fusion was the resistance mutation that had come up in a patient who already had a RET mutation. So it is important, and these NGS screens will pick them up. So in addition to the fact that we find them not infrequently now in patients with um, differentiated thyroid cancer, we do have two agents. We have entractinib and we have larotractinib, both of which have been studied for NTRAC fusions. And both of these got FDA approval in a tumor agnostic sense. In other words, they were based on any tumor that has an NTRAC fusion. Um, entractinib also has um, indications because it also hits ROS and um, other, other uh, targets. So that has a, a little bit of a broader spectrum. It's not selective just for TRAC. It also hits ROS and a couple of other kinases. I'll start with larotrectinib because it's the more selective of the two. It was approved based on phase one and phase two data, and the overall response rate was 63%, but even better in patients with differentiated thyroid cancer, it had 78% response. I'll point out that the data was a little bit more shaky for anaplastic, and even in the patients who responded, it didn't last a long time. So I don't really think anaplastic thyroid cancer is a great setting, at least for larotrectinib as a single agent. But in differentiated thyroid cancer, a response rate of 78%, again, compares favorably with what you might expect with lenvatinib, 
Again, pointing out that that comparison isn't valid because lymvatinib was tested in all genotypes, not just N-TRAC fusion. But with a response rate of 78%, that's really good. And in addition, the grade three treatment-related AEs is only 7%. Again, compared to what we saw with lymvatinib, which is much higher, this is again, a very, very good safety profile. And for that reason, for any patient that has N-TRAC fusions, I'm often going to offer them larotractinib in the first-line setting if I can get it. I do understand that in some countries it hasn't actually gotten approved yet, but in many cases it has. And when it's available, I think we really owe it to our patients to give it to them first because they have better toxicity, they have better response rates. And what's even more important, um, and I will point out, is that the, the progression-free survival is very, very long. In fact, we don't even know what the median progression-free survival is. And many of these patients are out four to five years. My second choice is actually entrectinib, which is also a very good NTREC, um, NTREC inhibitor. And in all tumor types, the response rate was 61%. But in thyroid cancer, it was a little lower. It was only 63%. So a little lower response rate um, in, in uh, patients with different thyroid cancer, but still very good. So if I had a patient who couldn't access larotrectinib and in my country I could get entrectinib, sure, I would absolutely want to use that. But remember, I also said that entrectinib is slightly less um, selective. So it does cause a little bit more problems with uh, diarrhea. Um, it does cause a little bit more trouble um, sometimes with other things like anemias and things like that. So uh, I do keep that in mind, and that's part of reason why I don't use it in, as my first choice. In general, both of these were definitely a step forward from the multi-kinase inhibitors because overall, they still have a much better grade three toxicity profile and a much longer progression-free survival than what we were necessarily seeing. What are we learning from the latest clinical data about new and emerging treatment options for RET-altered thyroid cancer? So what are we learning about the activity of RET-targeted agents? The data shows us with salpercatinib that it's an extremely active agent. And so as opposed to response rates for, say, uh, differentiated thyroid cancer, that linvatinib is the highest we have, for instance, with a response rate of about six in the 60 63%. Uh, it, with salpercatinib, we actually have patients who are responding into the 80s to 90%, so in differentiated thyroid cancer. And that is really a leap forward, um, maybe not a huge leap forward um, with lymvatinib. And we can't compare it directly because, of course, that number is for all comers that were on the lymvatinib study. It might actually have been superior for just the RET patients. But to point out that, obviously, it's a very, very good response rate. But we also know that with uh, with that response rate, we also get a much more focused uh, toxicity profile with a much smaller degree of grade three or four adverse events. Now, because this was such an exciting agent, it was then studied in a phase three, which is a larger trial that randomized um, salpercatinib to the standards of a care, either cabozantinib or vandetinib in the medullary thyroid cancer setting. And that data actually is coming out at ESMO very soon. So I really would point you to that. But it, there was a press release that said it met its primary endpoint, suggesting now that salpercatinib is superior to starting with an MKI in medullary thyroid cancer and that patients did better. So I think that the standard of care now is switching. And now we would use salpercatinib in the first line therapy as a first line therapy and medullary thyroid cancer, we could use um, cabozantinib and vendetinib in the second line. Now with pralcetinib, pralcetinib was also studied and was approved in a tumor agnostic way for all patients who have RET 
um, associated tumors. And they're not just uh, thyroid cancers, there's also lung cancers and others. But in thyroid cancer, we have medullary thyroid cancer, again, with point mutations and differentiated that has the uh, fusions. And they were asked to do a follow-up in medullary thyroid cancer and have decided not to proceed with that, probably because the other trial was going on. It was going to be hard to accrue. And for that reason, prosetinib is no longer approved for medullary thyroid cancer in the U.S. or EMA, but it's still useful in or available for patients with RET fusion. What are we learning from the latest clinical data about new and emerging treatment options for thyroid cancer with BRAF V600E mutations? So we actually know quite a lot about targeting BRAF V600E mutations because the first study was done in 2012 with targeting of BRAF positive differentiated thyroid cancer with vemurafenib. And this was studied in patients who either were treatment naive or patients who had had um, several lines of therapy. And what we did see was that the response rate was around 30%, which is actually quite good. And at the time was considered a really good viable alternative for patients with the toxicity from multi-kinase inhibitors. Um, I will say that BRAF inhibitors do have their own special toxicities. They can cause quite a lot of joint um, pain and, and discomfort. Um, dibrafenib can actually cause, uh, dibrafenib and, and um, trametinib can cause um, fevers and some discomfort because of that. And so they're not totally, uh, they're not uh, agents that are completely without any toxicity and they do have grade three toxicity, but I'd say they're maybe a little bit intermediate. They're intermediate in the response rates because their their response rates are around 30%, but their toxicities are um, a little bit also improved. So let's focus a little bit more. So we, we had phase two data with vemurafenib and while this is a very active agent and it was actually in the guidelines as an option, while it actually is in the guidelines, it never uh, went for FDA approval. Dibrafenib and trametinib went to FDA approval first as a tumor agnostic for any BRAF positive, but they did actually do a series of about 18 patients with anaplastic thyroid cancer, which showed that the response rate was quite high in BRAF positive patients of 56%. Now, there's a couple of caveats to this study, which anybody who's gonna be treating anaplastic thyroid cancer should know about. If you treat anaplastic thyroid cancer with multi-kinase inhibitors or other, other agents, they actually do better than patients who have non who do not harbor a BRAF mutation. So BRAF is actually a good prognostic uh, indicator in patients with anaplastic thyroid cancer, even without targeting it. But because we do have a targeted therapy and the response rate is 56%, of course, we would want to give that to our patients. What's not clear is whether or not you would want to do that instead of doing radiation, which is really very, very good for these patients, and or if you would want to do it in addition to radiation, and then the question would be, do you do it before the radiation or do you do it after? And a little bit, it will depend on the patient. If you're going to have to give a very large amount of radiation, and it's going to be a very large area, and the patient's going to have incredible morbidity from the radiation itself, starting with the BRAF inhibitor makes a lot of sense because you can shrink the, the tumor and it can make the patient feel better. And then even if they need radiation, lots of times the field can be smaller than it would have been otherwise. Dibrafenib actually is um, also active in patients with in the in a phase two setting with differentiated thyroid cancer. The response rates was identical, interestingly, to vemurafenib, but they did um, they do have the um, FDA approval for the tumor agnostic site. And because we have a little bit of data with um, dibrafenib, we certainly can use that as well. Um, if the side effects of dibrafenib are not controllable, you can try vemurafenib, or you can certainly still do a multi-kinase inhibitor. Remembering that the response rate of 30% is half of what we get with lenvatinib. I 
still will use lenvatinib in the first line setting and even sometimes cabozantinib in the second line setting before I would use stabrafenib, especially in patients who have more aggressive um, and progressing disease. Thank you, Professor Brose. In our final topic, we are going to examine what is the latest clinical evidence for personalised targeted treatments for thyroid cancer. In this section, Professor Brose discusses three different case scenarios. First, a patient with RET-altered medullary thyroid cancer, then a patient with NTRAC-altered papillary thyroid cancer, and finally, a patient with BRAF-altered papillary thyroid cancer. Case 1 is a RET-altered patient um, with medullary thyroid cancer. It was a 57-year-old male who um, had histology of medullary and their stage at the time of diagnosis was already metastatic. They had lesions in their lungs. So even though they had the thyroid cancer um, removed, they still had metastatic disease that needed to be treated. Uh, molecular pathology on the original tumor showed that they had a RET um, point mutation by NGS. Now, as I mentioned before, any patient who has a RET mutation on their somatic testing should absolutely have um, blood testing to see whether or not they have a hereditary form of medullary thyroid cancer. In a patient who is a little bit older, it's a little less likely than, say, a 20-year-old who develops medullary thyroid cancer, of course. So we would definitely want to check that. Now, we have checked that. Maybe this patient doesn't have a hereditary syndrome, but they definitely have RET-mutated um, disease in their lungs. And the question is, what do we do? So one of the things we know from the data is the fact that selprocatinib, which is the selective RET inhibitor, really is superior to the multikinase inhibitors in terms of toxicity profile, response rates, and um, progression-free survival. And so at this point, I would really use selprocatinib in the first-line setting. And then remember, there's also new data coming out in ESMO 2023 with the Libretto 531 study that randomized directly using selprocatinib versus uh, sort of like dealer's choice or doctor's choice um, for the first-line therapy. So it randomized patients either either the multi-kinase inhibitors or the selective inhibitors. And it has reached its primary endpoint um, demonstrating superiority. I can't really get into the data for that because it hasn't been released yet, but really it's gonna be worth looking for that in the coming month. So in the case of a patient who has a RET positive um, medullary thyroid cancer and, and we have access to selprocatinib, hands down, that's gonna be my first line therapy. And these patients will do well for quite some time. Now, the one thing I'll point out is that when they develop resistance, which happens much longer than after, say, cabozantinib or vendetinib, but still can happen, it's important still to do genetic testing again because additional mutations may be found. And if those have um, possible candidates for selective targeted therapies, you might want to use that. And if they don't, you still have the option to use vendetinib or cabozantinib. So that's my approach for a RET alter medullary thyroid cancer patient. I'll use suprocatinib for as long as it works. And then I would go to a multi-kinase inhibitor if they do not have another targetable uh, mutation. Now, another case we might consider is an NTRAC fusion positive papillary thyroid cancer. So in this case, we'll say take a 46-year-old female, pretty healthy otherwise, had a history of breast cancer, but that was stage one and treated and hasn't had any problems with that. And the histology of her thyroid cancer revealed papillary thyroid cancer, but it was advanced. The patient had NTRAC fusion that was detectable by next generation sequencing. That data, again, has been really ex exemplary for how you can target a, a tumor type based on a molecular profile, 
uh, the original trials that came out showed activity across tumor types. And what's especially exciting about uh, the track inhibitors is the number of patients that have complete responses. This is really something that we have not seen routinely in any other setting. And so this really puts N-track inhibitors in a whole nother class um, compared to what we the results we get from a multi-kinase inhibitor. And because of that, it absolutely is my first choice for patients who have um, who have N-track fusion papillary thyroid cancer. Again, some countries, even if it is approved by the EMA, may not have access to this, but again, in any country where patients have access for this, um, it would absolutely be my first choice based on super high response rates, um, exceeding the 63% that we see with lymphatinib, usually in the 70 in the 70% or sometimes even in the 80s. Um, response rates that are durable with progression-free survival, some of which have not even been reached yet, but are out over four to five years. And because the toxicity profile is really, really manageable. And some patients who don't tolerate um, the high dose of, um, well, high dose, it's not even high dose, it's, it's 100 milligrams BID, which is the starting dose. There can be caused dizziness, which can get in the way of, you know, living a, you know, a full life. Um, but patients do quite well, even with 75 per, um, milligrams uh, twice daily. So you can dose reduce if that is a, a side effect that is limiting for that patient. But overall, that it will do, the patients will do quite well. And really have superior results. So, N-track fusion, papillary thyroid cancer, larotrectinib, my first line therapy. I have used N-trectinib. I had patients who had a little bit more trouble with um, anemias that were limiting, and for that reason, um, larotrectinib is my preference over N-trectinib. Um, N-trectinib is approved in other settings for patients who have ROS1 alterations as well. So, um, N-trectinib I think is being used maybe primarily for the ROS1 patients. But again, if you're in a country that has N-trectinib and doesn't have larotrectinib, and tractin also very, very active and superior as far as toxicity profiles to say a multi-kinase inhibitor. So the other thing we can think about in this case is is what do we do if, you know, many of our patients who have differentiated thyroid cancer have already been treated with lymphatinib or with serafinib, um, and some of them have even received cabozantinib by the time we find out about their N-track fusions. Well, the good news, it's not too late. You can still treat these patients and they still have remarkable responses in the second and third line. And in fact, I had patients that I've been managing for years with serafinib and then lymphatinib, and some of them have been on other clinical trials. And I found out not until 10 years into their disease that they had a track fusion because RNA-based uh, NGS had not been the standard back when I first started treating them. But because of this, I switched them to this. And I have patients who I really thought were, were kind of goners. They were progressed on everything I had. They started on larotrectinib, and that was four or five years ago. Um, so I just can't uh, state and, uh, strongly enough how much larotrectinib has really changed the, the disease um, trajectory for these patients once we've identified that they actually harbor an N-track fusion. Another case we should consider is a case of a patient who might have um, BRAF positive um, papillary thyroid cancer. So that's prevalent, present in about 50% of cases. We've had, as I mentioned, BRAF inhibitors around um, that have been at least guideline um, indicated since 2012 with vemurafenib being the first one. And now we have dabrafenib and trametinib. There is no data in um, patients who had um, uh, differentiate thyroid cancer, that the doublet, adding the trametinib ha helped in any way and in fact was more toxic. So in differentiated thyroid cancer, we would either use vemurafenib or dabrafenib um, as a single agent. So a good example of this might be a 45-year-old patient who um, presents with um, nodules in their neck, 
they have radio uh they have uh radioactive iodine and it's ultimately discovered that they also have differentiated uh thyroid cancer in their lungs um this is an uncommon scenario sometimes people think it's just in their neck but then they they actually end up getting a cat scan at some point and it turns out that they have uh really disseminated disease in their lungs and they have a BRAF mutation um, and it turns out that these patients are much more likely to not take up iodine either initially or certainly lose the ability to take up iodine by, you know, it, by lessons, say, two, 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 uh, two rounds. So by the time they get to the second round, they're more likely to not have uptake. But now you have metastatic disease and what do you do? Now you have a choice between a BRAF inhibitor and a multikinase inhibitor, such as lenvatinib or serafinib. Well, we know in this case that the lenvatinib activity with a response rate in the 60s is much higher than the response rate of 30% with either vemurafenib or dibrafenib. And for this reason, this is the one case where I'd say the selective case um, and using a selectively targeted uh, inhibitor such as vemurafenib or dibrafenib is not superior to multi-kinase inhibitors. And maybe the slightly improved toxicity profile, which is somewhat improved, maybe not as much as we see with larotrectinib or salpicatinib, but the slightly improved toxicity profile is not necessarily um warranted in the face of like a, a half of the response rate. So because we double the response rate with, with lymphatinib and with really good care from a physician who pays attention to how to manage these side effects, you really can manage patients with lymphatinib quite well, either on top dose or in some cases in lower doses because they might need that to manage it. You know, a, a reduced dose of lymphatinib is actually pretty comparable to the BRAF inhibitors and patients who are on lymphatinib do do better. So for that reason, I would use lymphatinib in the first line setting probably even use cabozantinib, which has response rates up to 63% in differentiated thyroid cancer in the second line of therapy, but certainly would offer it to patients um, with differentiated thyroid cancer in the third line setting. Um, and that's important. Some people would also offer it a little earlier, maybe in the second line setting. I don't think it really should be offered in the first line setting in differentiated thyroid cancer. Thank you, Professor Bruce, for sharing your insights on personalized medicine in thyroid cancer. And thank you to our audience for listening to this Touch podcast. Additional content on related topics can be found on touchendocrinology.com. Music